0: Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Sponsored by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Georgine Rice. This week, the administration pushes another massive spending bill. While the American people pay the price with inflation, and yes, a recession. Everyone who's like in touch with reality, they all know we're in a recession. After the Supreme Court decision on abortion, Congress presents legislation to codify same-sex marriage. The question... Well, Republicans go along with it.
1: It passed with 47 Republican votes. That's the huge headline.
0: We'll look at our sense of self and this transgender moment.
2: We live in a world where we've so identified ourselves with our ideas and beliefs that we've lost sight of a common, transcendent notion of what it means to be human.
0: And China's clear and undeniable culpability in the COVID pandemic.
3: They deliberately allowed people to leave China carrying the virus.
0: All this and more, I'm Georgine Rice, and I'm glad to be with you once again. I'm coming to you from Portland in my home station of KPDQ. You can hear my own program live each weekday afternoon on 93.9 FM here in Portland and online via our website at kpdq.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. Thanks for joining us. We'll begin with the state of our economy. The latest quarterly numbers have been released, and the administration is struggling to argue that we are not in a recession. This, while inflation is at a 40-year high of 9.1%, and the government prepares to spend an estimated $700 billion more on the comically misnamed inflation relief bill. Economist Jerry Bauer will help us sort it out. He was a guest of John Hall and Kathy Emmons on Word 101.5 FM in Pittsburgh. What is
4: a recession, I guess, is, is point A. And point B, are we in a recession?
0: Six
5: months or more, half a year or more of economic contraction is a recession. OK, so if the economy gets smaller for two quarters in a row, what's that quarters? Well, three months is a quarter. Yeah. Right. So two of those are six months. So if you have six months in a row where the economy is getting smaller, that's a recession. Okay. Uh, now, the White House put out something a few days ago. Because they knew this was coming, right? They knew they were going to get a number and that number would have a little negative sign in front of it rather than a little positive sign. We Mm. all, you know, we knew all that. Sure. Okay. So they knew that. So they kind of went out there and kind of pre-spun and said, well, just because you have two quarters in a row of negative economic growth, two quarters in a row of contraction – that doesn't mean that it's necessarily a recession. Recession is a complicated thing that involves a number of factors. And there's an official scorekeeper, the National Bureau for Economic Research, and they're the ones who decide what's officially a recession. That's just not true. First of all, the dictionary defines a recession, two quarters in a row of negative economic growth. Hmm. Second of all, the law does. Hmm. If you search in the U.S. code for recession, in there is the definition. Guess what it is? Two quarters or more in a row of negative economic growth. Plus, you know what? Everybody knows we're in a recession. Anybody who does not stand to lose their job if they lose an election everyone who's like in touch with reality, they all know we're in a recession. Okay. We're in a recession. That's yes. the bottom line.
4: OK, so then all that, you know, pandemic money that was just flowing out of Washington, D.C., all those checks that everybody received and small businesses and whatnot, millions and billions of dollars was trillions. that trillions. What, so the- I wish it was billions. So, I wish it was only billions. Those trillions right? then, did that yes. set the stage for where we are?
5: Yes. Trillions in spending mm. and several trillions in newly created money. I mean, we, we increased the monetary base, like that base money that the Fed creates. Yeah. we that It didn't go up 10%. It didn't go up 100%. It went up 500%. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. We quintupled the money supply. And then the Fed came along and said, mm, it's getting a little out of hand. We're, we need to have a little tough love here. And so what they did is they looked at that 500% money supply increase and said, Oh, we're going to knock 2% off. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And look how the markets reacted earlier this year. Even that was like, Oh no, the world is ending. Don't, don't cut off my morphine, you know, and markets were collapsing and it triggered a recession. That's how fragile and vulnerable we were. So you say, you know, what do we do? Well, you do is you never create the bubble in the first place. Once you've created the bubble, there's no easy way out just like in life there are like four or five really bad decisions that you make in your life you get to the point where there's no good decisions left mm. you, you can get to the point in your life where all you have is like very very bad options or just regular bad options because that's the way the world that's the way God made the world there are implications to our decisions so we have made several very bad decisions to the point where there is no Soft landing available to mm-hmm. us. And now we're playing the blame. What's up. happening is the central bank is basically going to say, "We'll trigger a recession." That's what they've done. We're going to fight inflation somewhat, but we're not going to beat it because we know the American people are not willing to take the pain of really beating inflation.
4: So they're muddling through. So, Jerry, if the recession is here and you're, you know, like a lot of people living paycheck to paycheck and what you're saying is, you know, a long period ahead of just, you know, general malaise. Are there any tips to surviving all this?
5: Sure. Work. That's a that's a big one. (laughs) Yeah. Go to work. Go to work. Um, What I mean by that is that the labor participation rate is quite low right now, which means that there are a lower percentage of Americans working than probably any other time, at least since we've been keeping data. Why is that? Um, Well, part of it is age. Okay. Part of it is, however, that there might be a shift in work ethic. And part of it is that the social safety net has become a little bit more of a hammock Mm. (laughs) in some sense you know, where you can get unemployment benefits extended and you can get other forms of aid. So people are, you know, are responding to incentives. So in many cases, if you get off government aid into the workforce, your after tax income goes down. Really? Um, So that can be really, you know, a bad thing. But, you know, I've been saying this for a couple of years. Let me repeat it. We have a labor shortage. This is the time to get a job, get a job, keep the job, be the best at the job
0: and get promoted in the job and don't let go. There's no question about it. Inflation and the state of the economy is the top concern of Americans across the country. But Congress has taken up another priority, a legislative effort to codify same-sex marriage across the nation. You might well ask, didn't the Supreme Court already do that in the Obergfell decision? Well, yes, they did. Well, Albert Moeller explains from his briefing podcast.
1: The United States Senate is now set to take up legislation that would codify the Obergefell decision, as it was known, and would legislate same-sex marriage, or at least the recognition of same-sex marriage, in all 50 states. Now, here's the stunning thing. That legislation has already passed in the United States House. It passed with 47 Republican votes. That's the huge headline. Politically, it's very interesting to note that the Democrats were hoping to make some margin on this bill, to try to create distance from Republicans in order to demonstrate that Republicans are out of step with American culture. But contrary to the Democratic expectation, 47 Republicans in the House signed on. Now, I see that as a tragedy because it just shows you how moral change takes place so fast. It would have been unimaginable, just a matter of, say, a year ago, perhaps, that 47 Republicans would sign on to that bill. But this is exactly what happened during the month of July in the House of Representatives. In order to understand why this is so important as we think about the pace of moral change, we need to go back to the year 1996. In 1996, Congress passed legislation known as the Defense of Marriage Act. That act codified marriage as exclusively, in the view of the federal government, the union of a man and a woman. The Defense of Marriage Act became known as DOMA in terms of the acronym, but it was also passed by vast bipartisan majorities. And President Bill Clinton, who had earlier said that he would not support such legislation, finally bowed to political reality back in 1996. He signed the bill precisely because so many of the members of his own party in the House and the Senate had signed it. It was Clinton who was in danger of appearing out of step. But now you're looking at a reality in which it is very well known that the Democratic Party the national level takes LGBTQ rights as a major partisan affirmation. And one of the distinctions between Republicans and Democrats is that Republicans, at least... Even if they were not openly contesting the legalization of same sex marriage after the Supreme Court decision of 2015, they were on record as holding to a sane, rational understanding of marriage as rooted in culture and tradition, if not in the Bible and in reality, reflected in creation. But all of that is now very questionable. When 47 Republicans in the House of Representatives vote for this bill, and when Democrats now are scrambling because they realize they might actually actually get 60 votes to bring this bill to a successful conclusion in the Senate, will you understand that the tables really have turned? But the single biggest issue here is the brute fact that this nation has experienced what can only be explained as a profound moral transformation on the issue of marriage. If you have all those Democrats plus 47 Republicans in the House voting to do what the American public said they did not support the Supreme Court doing in 2015, the fact is we're looking at a sea change. Now, same-sex marriage wasn't the start of moral change when it comes to American sexuality or even the definition of marriage. You'd have to put easy divorce at the front of that line, but then also the sexual revolution, the rejection of a traditionally Christian sexual morality that forbade sex outside of marriage, and so— Long before same-sex marriage became even imaginable, you had the decrease in social sanction against sex before marriage, sex outside of marriage, sex in almost any other context. The LGBTQ revolution was simply riding the energy of the larger sexual revolution. But it was something different because it was far more fundamental in terms of the moral revolution. To get to the legitimization, the legalization of homosexual behavior and then to homosexual marriage, well, that takes something that can only be described as the complete rejection of the moral tradition of millennia. Something else we need to note is that that kind of cultural or moral acceleration or velocity, it's also matched by the fact that, In almost every case, after there has been a revolution in morality, there's a new realignment on the other side. And that realignment takes place across so many sectors of society that you can almost be forgiven for not remembering that it wasn't always that way. And that's certainly the case when it comes to same-sex marriage. But our political class, here's what we need to note, wants to get over this issue. The political class, and that includes Republicans as well as Democrats, they want to get past the issue of same-sex marriage. Because to Democrats, it is simply a part of the landscape, a part of the orthodoxy, that cannot even be questioned, and also a winning political issue with their constituency. For Republicans, it is something like an anchor around the neck. It is now something that costs Republicans in so many areas of the country where the Republican position, if it's going to be against same-sex marriage, is simply going to cost the party too much. And it's a political calculation. But as we need to understand as Christians, that political calculation has vast moral importance. Or to put it another way... It tells us something in moral terms. When you have that number of Republicans figure out they need to be on the same-sex marriage affirmation side of the issue, if they're going to have a political future. That's telling.
0: Coming up, the medical community wrestles with this transgender moment.
1: We
2: live in a world where we've so identified ourselves with our ideas and beliefs that we've lost sight of a common, transcendent notion of what it means to be
0: human. Carl Truman, when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment.
6: As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy enters our 25th anniversary year, we've remained committed to a single truth of world history, that ideas have consequences. To understand these ideas and their impact on today's politics, and to test them quantitatively, requires the unique curriculum we offer on our Malibu, California campus. Apply now for fall classes at pepperdine.edu SPP. That's pepperdine.edu SPP.
0: Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. The Supreme Court, in their release of the Dobbs decision, overturned Roe v.ersus Wade and returned the issue of abortion back to the states, to the people. But the rage and the fury that court decision engendered has revealed a great deal about where we are on a range of issues that, well, go far beyond abortion. Carl Truman of Grove City College spoke about it on The Ride Home with John and Kathy.
7: We've seen the anger that has been displayed since the Dobbs decision came down, and it's been what we expected. People are very, very angry. In your article, though, for First Things called The Myth of the Modern Self, one thing that really hit me, which is the anger is directed at the fact that we can't control our bodies, so yeah, ta- so talk it. about that because some control over our bodies is essential. That's why we protect people from crime, right? That's why we you know are concerned about justice issues in the world. But talk about when you feel like that goes too far.
2: Yeah, well, I think it's important to make a distinction here. There's, there's a question of what we might call control over bodies, which I would say comports with nature, if you like. Mm-hmm. So if a child is born with a cleft palate, uh, having surgery to repair the cleft palate. Is uh, an attempt, if you like, to bring the child's body into line with nature. When you look at something like abortion, though, abortion is not attempting to to enhance or bring the body into line with nature. What abortion is doing is attempting to fight against nature, trying to fight against the purpose, if you like, of, of the female human body. So I think there's a there's a difference between maybe control is the wrong word, the difference between using technology to help us work in the direction of nature and human ends and using technology to overcome those yes. or to defeat them in some way. And that's why a lot of doctors now, we you know they think of themselves as healthcare providers. Just think about that language. They're there to provide a service to the wheel that's attached to the lump of matter. They're not there to help you as a person flourish in the best way possible, connected to some transcendent view of what it means to be a human being. Mm -hmm.
4: So then as the patient, I can define the terms that I wish to be treated as, because I know best.
2: Certainly that's becoming the case on the transgender issue. I was chatting to a pediatrician about seven or eight months ago and, and I asked him, you know, if somebody comes into your office, even a child comes into your office and says, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. Is that the one medical condition where you have to accept the self-diagnosis of the patient? And he looked me straight in the eye and he said, yes. Mm. I thought that was a a chilling and stunning uh, admission.
7: There's an additional step that you write about, which is that force and intimidation can be exerted on you as a part of culture so that you have to go along with a myth that's being presented. So I I think that's where we go beyond human condition and could potentially be coming up against uh, an issue of great concern. Tell us about it.
2: Yes, I think we're, what we're seeing is the, the developing in, in the West is what my friend Rod Dreher refers to, a kind of soft totalitarianism. Totalitarianism in, in the Eastern Bloc was very obvious. Uh, uh, the The Russians, the Soviets demanded that the people subscribe to certain things that most people knew weren't true. Over here, it's more subtle. Uh, But we're finding things like pronouns, for example, the requirement to, to use somebody's preferred pronoun. Somebody is obviously a man, but you're required to refer to them as a woman. Most of us know that's a lie. Most of us know that isn't true. And most of us know, though, that if we don't conform with that, we could lose our jobs. We could lose our businesses. We could end up in very serious trouble. And I think that kind of social pressure that's being brought to bear, not so much, I think, in the West by central government, but more by big corporations is becoming a significant issue at this particular point in time.
4: Right. And, and that's the truth, right? I mean, people's careers or their relationships can be marred by this. If you refuse to recognize someone sitting in front of you, you know, with their preferred pronouns, that becomes a deal, an issue for a lot of people.
2: Yes, because, you know, again, we live in a world where we've so identified ourselves with our ideas and beliefs that we've lost sight of a common transcendent notion of what it means to be human. And when we identify ourselves with our feelings or our beliefs, then when somebody comes along and contradicts those, we feel that we ourselves are being denied as people. Um, I'm glad I grew up at a time. I have a lot of friends who are not Christians, and it never intimidated me that, that they, they didn't believe as I did, because I didn't see it as a, a, a rejection of me as a person. But we have a rising generation for whom beliefs and identity and personhood are so closely tied That a disagreement over a political or religious point is seen as a a fundamental rejection of somebody as a person.
0: The backdrop or the context within which each one of us has lived these past two years, of course, is the COVID-19 pandemic. This week, the Senate has finally taken up hearings to look into China's role in all of it, including the controversial subject of -of gain-of-function research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Our next guest, Stephen Mosier of the Population Research Institute, has been tracking China's central role in this latest pandemic and historic pandemics that also originated in China. Stephen Mosier joined me on my program here in Portland. Now, let me ask you the question that some people are willing to answer directly and others uh, suggest, well, we really don't and may never know. What is the origin of (laughs) COVID-19?
3: Well, I, I, I said in February of 2020, That all roads led to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, because at the time uh, they put the military, a bioweapons expert, uh, Major General Chun Wei, in charge of the epidemic in Wuhan, because they had been doing gain-of-function research in the lab in Wuhan. Because the idea that a bat bat somehow flew into someone's soup at the Wuhan wet market and it passed from bat to human without uh, human intervention is just nonsensical. There are too many changes. Uh, that were made to the genome of the coronavirus for it to be a natural origin uh, it had to come from the lab and then of course i was cancelled i was accused of being a conspiracy theorist by uh, a group of people who were organized by the master conspiracy theorist of them all dr anthony fauci uh, who actually you know with his six billion dollar budget uh, was sending money Uh, to the Wuhan Institute of Virology through EcoHealth Alliance to collect hundreds of bat coronaviruses and to carry out gain-of-function research in the lab there to make them more infectious and more deadly. And, of course, he may have been doing, Georgine, noble scientific research, just advancing the frontiers of knowledge, but I guarantee you the PLA bioweapons expert said, America is going to pay us to create dangerous viruses in the lab And they're uh, they're going to give us the techniques to do that. I'm sure they were delighted uh, to participate in this program. Uh, I often get asked, you know, was it was it a leak uh, or was it deliberately released? And the answer is it was both. It was it was developed in the lab. It was clearly engineered in the lab, and they were working on a vaccine when I believe it escaped during vaccine trials in Wuhan, caused an epidemic there. And once the Communist Party leaders realized they had an epidemic in China, they deliberately allowed uh, people to leave China, uh, carrying the virus uh, to places like Milan, Italy, and Madrid, Spain, and New York City in the United States. So um, so it's both and. It, was, it was, came out during vaccine trials, uh, but was deliberately released upon the world. But these are all the misdeeds. Uh, the misbehavior, uh, the criminal activity of the International Criminal Terrorist Organization, uh, the criminal conspiracy known as the Chinese Communist Party. Coming up? If there are no consequences for the Communist Party's releasing a deadly virus on the world, then the question in my mind is, why wouldn't they do it again?
0: More with Stephen Mosier when The Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Georgine Rice. It will be important to see what comes out of the Senate hearings this week on China and the origins of COVID-19 and the pandemic. No matter what you think about how the pandemic was handled in your part of the country or on the national level, this is important. It's important because China's culpability is overwhelmingly clear, and the virus itself has taken such an enormous toll. Let's return for more of my conversation with Stephen Mosier of the Population Research Institute. He's the author of the brand new book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Pandemics.
3: I think the millions of people who died from coronavirus around the world, And the tens of trillions of dollars of economic damage caused by the coronavirus make this probably the most lethal weapon, single weapon, ever released upon the planet. And and again, if if there are no consequences for the Communist Party's releasing a deadly virus on the world, then the question in my mind is, why wouldn't they do it again?
0: I wonder what your, your thoughts are on the future of weaponizing um, viruses, pandemics. Is this the wave of the future? Clearly, China was in the process of trying to figure out how to weaponize the coronavirus. What do you anticipate we might see in the future?
3: Well, China has a very active bioweapons program. It has really uh, since the founding of the People's Republic of China uh, 70, 73 years ago. It took over the old Japanese bioweapons facilities in Manchuria and has been going great guns since. Now with U.S. technology and with U.S. funding, it's taken it to a whole new level. Uh, The new high ground of uh, bioweapons research in China, according to the former head of the National Defense University, is the development of bioweapons that are ethnically targeted, all right? That are targeted at certain ethnicities uh, who lack uh, natural resistance to a particular virus when when perhaps uh, the people in China have a natural resistance. That, well, that is the new high ground. That's what they're working for, is weapons they can target at perhaps Koreans, Japanese, uh, Caucasians, Africans, uh, which would uh, to which they would have a natural or acquired immunity. Uh, the other thing that I would mention was that uh, China's massive DNA collection effort uh, is also a danger. Yes. Because if they have your DNA, uh, they can see what vulnerabilities it contains, what sort of viruses would be lethal to you as an individual or to the group uh, that you belong to and so i'm very much opposed to sending uh, any of our dna to china for so-called testing and you cannot believe the, the companies say that the the dna information is kept confidential nothing in china is confidential when the chinese communist party intelligence services and military wants to get their hands on it everything can be used can be turned into a weapon
0: Here at home, we saw the politicization of a pandemic. Those who violated the quarantine or declined the vaccine had the full weight of the law dropped on them. Um, Your thoughts on, on moving forward with the potential of future pandemics, monkeypox, for example, already being declared a pandemic despite the low numbers. What we should prepare for and how we might respond in future to efforts to politicize and take full advantage of these political opportunities.
3: Well, I mean, first of all, we have to be very alert, as Taiwan was alert, to dangers coming from China. We have to realize that they have an active bioweapons program, that they're building more high containment labs. I can hardly bring myself to say high containment because they, they're they so leaky. They're doing more gain-of-function research now. And I'm afraid that lurking in a test tube somewhere is the next generation of a coronavirus or some other virus that has been weaponized. So we have to be uh, alert to that possibility. If the next one that comes is a highly infectious respiratory airborne virus though, we have to realize that we already have those. Uh, We have the flu, the seasonal flu is a highly infectious airborne respiratory disease. And so we have to be prepared to protect the vulnerable, those who are immune compromised. If it's like COVID again, we probably don't wanna close the schools because it turns out Sweden didn't close their schools. They didn't mask, they didn't socially distance. They protected the vulnerable. Everyone else went on with their lives. And the uh, infection and uh, hospitalization rates for students remained low. Uh, the infection hospitalization rates for teachers remained low. And, and the kids continued to get an education over the last two years, unlike our own kids, which were confined to home and, and fell behind their peers overseas. So um, we have to understand natural immunity Fauci apparently forgot about natural immunity after talking about it privately at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic and admitting to Manuel, who who's the former health advisor to President Obama, that, yes, if you have the coronavirus, you'll have robust natural immunity probably lasting the rest of your life. He stopped talking about it as soon as the vaccine came out uh, because he wanted everyone to be vaxxed. Uh, I'm sorry. I had the coronavirus. I have natural immunity. Uh, I don't need the vax. And I think we obviously have to stop funding Chinese labs. We have to make sure that Fauci's not uh, sending money through an organization like Eco Health Alliance to continue funding this research, either in China or anywhere else in the world, Ukraine, or any other lab in the world, because it's dangerous. A pain function research has to stop.
0: For my complete conversation with Stephen Mosier, go to ChristianOutlook.com. Coming up, a pandemic and the killing of George Floyd at the hands of police. It seems like there's a perfect storm that took place in 2020. When the Christian Outlook returns... In a moment, stay with us.
6: As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy enters our 25th anniversary year, we've remained committed to a single truth of world history, that ideas have consequences. To understand these ideas and their impact on today's politics and to test them quantitatively requires the unique curriculum we offer on our Malibu, California campus. Apply now for fall classes at Pepperdine.edu SPP. That's Pepperdine.edu slash SPP.
0: Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. As I mentioned earlier in the program, the COVID-19 pandemic is the backdrop of so much that transpired over the past three years. It was May 25th of 2020 when George Floyd was killed, his neck under the knee of Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. Floyd was a black man. Chauvin was white. The death of Floyd unleashed a series of riots and violent protests all across the nation. They were destructive and costly and in many ways, devastatingly polarizing. Dove Grotheis of Denver Seminary is the author of a new book out just this week, Fire in the Streets, how you can confidently respond to incendiary cultural topics. Grotheis was guest of Gino Geraci on 94.7 FM, The Word in Denver. You ask the question, "Who started the fire?"
8: And it seems to me, you know, you're you're playing off the metaphor of the streets uh, burning in 2020 after the COVID crisis and the George Floyd crisis. But you're not just talking about a a cultural fire; you're talking about also a metaphysical kind of a fire, something that ignites not just the imagination but the way we think about things.
9: Well, it really starts with literal fire. Right. The riots of 2020 that were really sparked by the George Floyd killing. That really caused a lot of us, I think, to wonder what was happening and how
8: safe is our country? It seems like there's a perfect storm that took place in 2020 of a growing suspicion that this really is a problem, but then a ripening of the academic and media where you have this perfect storm of, of where people will go, this is going to generate enough rage that the whole world will take notice. Well, that's true. You had all the frustration related to the COVID
9: problem. And then people break out into the streets. They have this image of a black man being killed by a white police officer. And then you have this narrative that this is just an emblem of how bad American society is. And it's been bad from the beginning. Mm-hmm. It's been racist from the beginning. It's racist now. And so we need to destroy things to make our point. And there was over a billion dollars of damage in the summer of 2020. And it was not just people taking to the streets. It was an idea that America is not just flawed, but actually terribly corrupt, and it has to be completely broken down.
8: And done away with. Yeah. Another interesting thing to me about the origins of critical race theory and critical theory itself, if we were to try to recreate socialism in Russia, socialism in China, this particular view here in the United States of America It doesn't seem like it would play well in Venezuela, Russia, or China. Is this a kind of a unique strain of thinking tailored to undermine the United States of America?
9: Well, it is because each country has its own history and background. So you have to understand what classical Marxism is, and I explain that and give a lot of original citations to it. And I talk about how Marxism led to the deaths of 100 million people in the 20th century at the hands of their own civil government. So we're talking about the reign of Lenin and Stalin in the USSR, the reign of Mao Zedong in China, Pol Pot in Cambodia, and so on. And this is horrendous. This is a terrible human disaster.
8: So let's talk about that for just a minute, because we want to contrast and compare the accusation of Washington Jefferson being slave owners, and Lenin and Stalin and Pol Pot and all of the rest killing 100 million human beings. Now, we know that slavery is immoral, and it's wrong. But is it wrong to play the moral equivalency game at this point in our discussion?
9: No, I don't think it is, because the founders, many of them were conflicted about slavery. And you can have a very jaded view of the Declaration and say, well, Jefferson's the primary author, and he said that all men are created equal, and he owns slaves. So the whole thing's just a crock. Or you could say that was his deepest conviction, but he wasn't living true to it. And so when you have Martin Luther King speaking at the Capitol of the United States, I think it was 1964, he says we're here to cash a check, basically. The Declaration and the Constitution are promissory notes that we need to live up to. And that's the view that I take. So I don't want to burn down the Declaration or burn down the Constitution. I think if you read them with any charity and try to find what the intention of the authors were, you'll find something actually very noble. And that's what Abraham Lincoln appealed to. That's what actually the freed slave Frederick Douglass appealed to. He said, you really see the seeds of freedom and equality in the Declaration and in the Constitution, but we have to live up to them. We're not wanting to destroy them and start some other form of civil government. A republic is too good to do that.
8: One of the things I wanted to talk about is the relationship of atheism to Marxist philosophy, whether we're talking about Karl Marx or whether we're talking about critical theory or critical race theory that they argue they argue that atheism is just a lack of belief in gods and that it's an economic philosophy and the reason why they had to be so draconian towards the church was because the church contained power and were instruments of oppression but if the church (laughs) will stop being an instrument of oppression Well, it's okay for it to exist. Talk a little bit about the relationship between atheism and the presence of a Judeo-Christian worldview or even the presence of historical biblical Christianity in a Marxist setting.
9: Well, Marx was extremely antagonistic to religion. He thought, as you said, that religion oppressed people. It gave them the hope of an afterlife so they didn't have to worry about creating a better world in this life. So here's a famous quote from Marx, religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world and the soul of a soulless condition. It is the opium of the people. The abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of the people is the demand for their real happiness. And he also said elsewhere that the criticism of religion is the basis of all criticism. That is criticism of an unjust social situation. So Marxism is incompatible with the Judeo-Christian worldview on many levels. But for one thing, uh, it doesn't believe that there is any kind of God-ordained authority in the world. Mm-hmm. It believes that any kind of free market situation or what he would call capitalist situation is oppressive and alienates the workers from the fruit of their labor. And that is intrinsically wrong, and it's not that you can reform that system, it has to be overturned, it has to be a revolution. So, biblically speaking, there's lots of reasons to try to reform society and try to bring about a more just social order, but this has to be done in the fear of God, you see, and that's what Marxism eliminates. Coming up... Black Lives Matter was ingenious in choosing the name of the organization. Right. Now, how can you be against an organization called that?
0: More with Doug Grotheis when The Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. As we reflect on events of the last three years, we recognize that there are some pretty radical ideas being proposed and implemented right before our eyes. You see it in elements of the Black Lives Matter movement, and you can see it in the embrace of all things LGBTQ+ but few have made the linear connection between these critical theories and Marxism. I'll let Doug Grothuis explain as he continues his conversation with Gino Geraci on the book fire in the streets. Historical Marxism seems to be very different from the secularism,
8: eroticism and relativism of critical theory and critical race theory.
9: Well, it's a uh, critical race theory is a development. So one, Very significant piece that I skimmed over very quickly Mm -hmm. is the philosopher Herbert Marcuse, who basically wed Marx with Freud. So Freud had a very sexualized view of the human being and believed that society was based on repressing sexual urges. And Marcuse looked at that and said, what we really need to get the revolution cranked up is to release these sexual urges. So the constraints on Sexuality through monogamy or through heterosexual behavior need to be lifted so the sexual energy will be brought to bear to bring about the ultimate revolution. So let's get rid of those taboos. Let's include sexual minorities in the revolution and let's make an appeal to people of color to get them on board and expand the idea of oppression beyond just the economic to the Racial and also the sexual. So Marcuse is a key figure. So I spend quite a bit of time with him in the book. Now, he died in 1979. Mm-hmm. But I think, as I mentioned, he mentored Angela Davis, who is a very significant black radical in the 1960s. She's still alive and she's still active. Uh, she wrote the foreword to Patrice Cullors biography and Patrice Cullors is one of the or was one of the founders yeah, well, uh, of Black Lives Matter. You see, a lot of this comes out of white guilt, and I get that term from Shelby Steele. Like, America is unjust, terrible things are happening, so we need to just throw a lot of money at good black causes to sort of atone for our sin by giving money to radical black causes. And it ends up that Black Lives Matter was ingenious in choosing the name of the organization. Right. You know, how can you be against an organization called that? But when you look at their philosophy and you look at their original mission statement, which I quote in my book, they are against the nuclear family. They want to bring it down. They want to affirm the LGBTQ perspective on life, especially in the black community, because African-Americans in the US have traditionally not been all that excited about that.
0: Thank you for joining us for the Christian Outlook. There's more of Gino's conversation with Doug Grothuis on Fire in the Streets. You can find the full interview at christianoutlook.com. While you're on our site, remember to subscribe to our podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin, producers Charlie Richards, David Pouchon, Mike Cook, Alex Perez, and James Blend, I'm Georgine Rice. Join us again next time for the Christian Outlook.